teaching of the Lord Buddha. So it has, it's a kind of perfect teaching, in other words, in just that one sermon is the, is the way to be freed from all suffering. He describes the way. So he gives you the necessary information. And so it's a, a teaching based on the experience of suffering, its causes, the realization of the end of suffering and the way or the Eightfold Path, which is a way of non-suffering. And then it's quite, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, but it's to be realized each one for themselves. So this kind of approach, this particularly Buddhist approach is quite unique in human uh, civilization to present such a profound and clear teaching about what the basic problem is. Ignorance uh, is the problem, and uh, through ignorance we create suffering in our lives. Once we liberate the mind from ignorance, then we don't create suffering. So the, the way of non-suffering doesn't mean that we, we don't experience uh, the... Uh, unpleasantness of this sensory realm anymore. It means that we don't create suffering around the unpleasantness of this sensory realm. And sometimes we get the idea that once you're enlightened you don't feel anything anymore. And then like the, the Buddha, once he was enlightened, he didn't feel anything. He's just completely kind of oblivious, indifferent, you know, not feeling anything at all, but just in a blissful state till his body died. But when you read the sutta, you realize that after his enlightenment, he, he uh, felt everything. The whole 45 years after his enlightenment was spent uh, dealing with the problems of individuals and society and, uh, and that of, the, of that time. And establishing a sangha, which would carry the teaching through, through the present, to this time right now here in the Sala, here at Amavati. This is the result of the Buddha's enlightenment and his establishment of the Sangha so that the, this Dhammajaka Sutta, the first sermon, could be, had, had a way of being transmitted through uh, generations, through 2,538 years. And so you can see it, it, it he obviously knew what he was doing. 
because it's still a, a teaching that is uh, appropriate to human to the human condition. It's not an old-fashioned, archaic teaching in it. It's, it's in fact modern psychology is moving more towards the more noble truths. Because it's a timeless teaching, he's teaching about the the way things are. That isn't that is getting beyond just culture and personality and and uh, whether you're male or female or what class or race or ethnic background, nationality, all these different things that that influence our conscious experience. We're we're getting we're transcending all that into this perfect state of awareness. This ability to be mindful means we're, we're, because we can pay attention, we can listen, we can, we can be a receptive, listening, awakened being. That's within, and we can reflect on the way things are. We have a, a reflective Buddha mind. So this is, this is what the Buddha was pointing to, is this ability to contemplate existence an attachment and the causes of suffering and the way to let go of the causes of suffering into realizing non-suffering. So this, this path is something very uh, very practical. It's not an airy-fairy kind of abstraction of the mind. It's not, it's not something that, you know, is, uh, is just, we're not just being sentimental Buddhists about, you know, Lord Buddha and all the wonderful things he did in the past, we're actually uh, recognizing that the teaching is extraordinarily practical. It's about you and me. It's about life. It's about feeling. It's about consciousness. It's about everything that we're experiencing in our lifetime, good and bad, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, happiness, suffering. There's nothing, it's nothing, uh, he's not pointing at anything that is outside human experience. Whether, no matter what position or character type you happen to be. We all fit into this, every single one of us. There's not, there's not anyone outside this teaching. <laughs> there's not a teaching for, say, Especially gifted people for Brahmins or for for aristocrats or for uh, just for men and not for women or it's not just a teaching for special special types of human beings. It's not just for Jews. It's also for Gentiles. So it includes it's a the teaching that uh, we're talking about our common human dilemma and uh, our ignorance and our problems we create around that, through that ignorance. And so the insights are into letting go. And I, it's interesting to see how uh, just the, uh, when one practices the Dhamma, then of course you, you begin to, you're, you're changing from the conditioned way of perceiving yourself and the world you live in toward a, an insightful way of looking at life. Insight is 
is uh, insight, what we call when we say yanang utabhati, panya utabhati, these in the Tamajaka Sutta, these, these kind of, this insight arose, this profound understanding. It's not acquired knowledge from, from uh, studying books. It's not, not being able to memorize the wisdom teachings of, of sages. <coughs> And it's not, it's not something you, you get from uh, some outside source. It's the insight, it's direct insight knowledge, insight into these Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is the truth of that there is this suffering, this dukkha, that we all have. We all experience dukkha. And this dukkha is uh, something to be understood. So you have the first insight is, is just the simple recognition that there is dukkha. There is suffering. There is something, there's, there's a sense there's something wrong or something unsatisfactory about ourselves or how we, how we perceive. It can be personal. It can be seen as something wrong with the family you're in or something wrong with the society you're in, something wrong with the world. But... It's just that feeling that, that, is, that, is that we all have. There's something wrong, something incomplete, something unsatisfactory. There is this, this dukkha. And then the, the second insight is dukkha should be understood. So dukkha means uh, you, you, should, you, should, you should study it. To understand something, you've got to really look at it. You can't understand something that you're dismissing or you're running away from. You've got to accept it. You've got to really stand under it, hold it, watch it, investigate dukkha, so that you're understanding it. You're not just trying, because usually we're trying to get away from it. We're conditioned to any form of suffering, unpleasantness, or insecurity, physical pain or emotional uh, anguish or whatever, we're always trying to get away from it, trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible. We don't like it. So this is pointing to not to getting away or running away or, or, or distracting ourselves, but understanding it. So to, um, how do you understand suffering? You, you contemplate it. You go into it. You notice it. To understand something, you have to accept it for what it is. Even if it's horrible, you have to, you can't understand it until you accept it the way it is. And then, so the, the second insight is that dukkha should be understood. So this is quite a profound insight. Suddenly you're, you're not just saying, I don't want any suffering, I don't want to suffer anymore, I just, please God, protect me from all harm like we, when we were children. We used to pray at night, saying, please God, may I pass my examinations, and please God, may I not get sick, and may I not have any more physical pain. You know, like a little child praying to God to take away any pain or suffering. That's one level of experience, but now is a more mature way is suffering should be understood. So you're willing to experience suffering. You're willing to, to accept suffering. 
and to investigate it. And then the third insight, because you, 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 you're doing that, then, then you have this, this uh, realization that, you, that suffering has been understood. You, you know that it's no, no longer just an intellectual abstraction or an ideal in your head. It's, it's something, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an insight understanding of dukkha. There is this dukkha. You understand it. You've seen it, you, you know what it is. Then the second noble truth is there are the causes of, or origin of suffering. Suffering is not the ultimate, absolute, eternal reality. It's not eternal, infinite. It's not permanent. So there is a cause, and the causes of suffering are <coughs> ignorance and desire. So desire. In this sense, they use the word dhanha, which means, it always means something coming out of ignorance. And this is important, I think, different things. Like we say, we have a desire for liberation or desire to realize nibbana. But in, in the Pali language, you wouldn't say, I have a dhanha for nibbana. Uh, you have aspiration. You aspire, there's a kind of they an ontological aspiration of the human heart to towards uh, the ultimate realizing the ultimate reality. So I mean, say your aspiration or your spiritual aspiration isn't. I wouldn't put under the heading of desire or dunha, because dunha is something out of ignorance, out of avicca, not understanding things properly. Then we create desires. So the the three desires. They, 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 they list three, cat, three categories of desire in this sutta. Which is, the first one is gamadana, which is sensual desire. Desire for pleasurable sense experiences through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. That's like wanting to, the desires that come to wanting to see beauty and attach to beautiful things or hear beautiful sounds and so forth. And then, Pawadanha, desire for becoming. Desire to become, to have ambition, to, to get something to, you don't have yet, to be something that you're not yet, to attain. It can be worldly desire, it can be wanting to become rich and famous, be respected and appreciated as a personality, or it can, it can be even more subtle, wanting to to become uh, something, uh, a very good person uh, for egotistical reasons. To get praise, to be approved of, and so forth. And then, then there's vipavadanha, or desire to annihilate or get rid of. So that's like wanting to get rid of things you don't like. Desire to get rid of pain, desire to get rid of, of fear, and desire to get rid of of uh, anything unpleasant, whether it be physical pain or sense ugliness, ugly sensual things, or or emotional uh, ugly emotions, painful emotions, wanting to get rid of them, 
So it's Vipravadana tends to be the desire to suppress or annihilate, destroy. So these, these three kinds of desire, the insight is there, the, the fourth insight then, or the first insight into the second noble truth is the uh, insight, there is the origins or the causes of dukkha. Then the second insight into the second noble truth is these causes should be let go of. So that insight is to let go of desire. We should let go of desire. Let go of dharma dhanha, let go of bhava dhanha, let go of vipava dhanha. So that's the, that's the prescription. The problem is the, 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 the stating that, that there's the cause and then the prescription is yeah. you should let go and then the result of letting go you, you realize you have this, you have this the, the third um, insight into the second noble truth is desire has been let go of. So this is what you're doing then is you're, you're using mindfulness, aren't you? You're, you? This isn't something you're creating in your mind. It's something you're, 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 you're watching and listening. You're studying. You're examining. You're looking into suffering and its cause. You're looking, what is desire? What is dunha? It's not just saying you shouldn't have any desire. I'm not saying you shouldn't have any, but desire should be understood, should be let go of. And so they give you the three, three categories of dunha, and they help you to kind of look at your, the, the experience of desire in a way that you might not notice if you didn't have such, such a teaching to point out ways of looking at it. And then through letting go of desire, through, through the practice of letting go of desire, then, then you have that insight, desire has been let go of. So that's the third insight into the second noble truth. So there's three, there's three insights for each noble truth. And altogether, there's 12 insights. Three times four is 12. Four noble truths, three insights. This is very kind of nicely organized religion. <laughs> very neat packaging it has. Well, then, this is like, apply that to your, to your own experience of life. Like just in monastic life, you hear Amravati. What is the suffering at Amravati? If you're living here at Amravati. You know, you can, you can blame it on the place. You can blame it on the people. You can say, oh, I don't, uh, I don't like the place, I don't like the people, or not enough space or not enough time. There's always something you can say that suffering is due to something external. 
But actually, that very thinking, that type of thinking is suffering, isn't it? I don't want things to be the way they are. I don't like the way it is. I want to be someplace that I'm not. I don't want to be here. I don't want these people to be like this. I want them to be something else. That's, what are we doing then? You know, what is that that we're doing? And so in, in monastic life, we have the four requisites as a foundation. We, to, to, when you're reflecting on a monastery or place, suitable place, you have, you have to have basic requisites, say enough food, shelter, robes, and medicine for illness. That's, that's good enough here. There's enough food, shelter, robes, and medicine. The Dhamma Vinaya, the Dhamma Buddhist teachings are taught, and Vinaya is practiced and respected. So, so then you think, now that's, that's fine. Now then you, you, I mean, you do have, you're not just saying uh, that everything, any old monasteries, that you should just put up with any old monastery. Because if they don't teach Dhamma or keep Vinaya, then you have a just right to, to, to think that you should go somewhere else. Or if there's not enough food to eat, not, no shelter, no robes, or no medicine, then, then, it's, uh, then also that, that, you know, this isn't just being to put up with, with any old thing, but it gives you a, base, a kind of crude basis to work from, not a high standard. The food doesn't have to be high standard, or the shelter doesn't have to be, the, you know, a high standard, high quality shelter, or anything like that. It's what is basic, really, basic thing, plus Dhamma Vinaya. So then, once you, once you establish that in your mind, the kind of, that which is necessary is, is, is adequate. It doesn't have to be the best, it's adequate. Then you begin to see your own, you can see how you create dukkha around, I don't like the food, or I don't like the shelter, I don't like my robes, or I don't like those monks, or I don't like those nuns, I don't like the place. And you can see how your own mind tends to, to create suffering around not liking or wanting wanting sense pleasures that, that you can't have, or wanting to get rid of things. Or, or uh, one of the problems in England, uh, British people, is that uh, wanting to, uh, uh, to blame themselves all the time for everything. They're not good enough. Not to, to be self-disparaging, to blame yourself as a person, to blame somebody else as a person, to blame the place and all this, and say, this is, what, this is what you're studying. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel these kind of desires, but, but to, to understand and then to, to let go of those desires. And that letting go is something you, it's not just an idea, it's something you practice with. How do you let go of desire? How do you let go? First you have to know what a desire is before you can let go of it. You can't let go of something you don't know 
what it is, you have to really be an expert on desire. So our life, say, as monks and nuns or samanas, with a life of renunciation restraint, it brings up a lot of desires. Isn't it? We, we, we restrained ourselves. We, we're forbidden, like we're celibate. We can't. We have, we have sexual desires, but we're we're celibate. So we can we can investigate, like sexual desire. We 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 look at it. We we examine it. Not follow it or suppress it, but. We're, we're investigating, we're, we're recognizing, it's like this. Sexual desire is something that comes and goes, it's not ultimate reality. And so, there's this ability, isn't it, to reflect and contemplate, say, like, just like sexual desire. Just because you're, you take a, a brahmacharya rule doesn't mean you're not going to have any more sexual desires, as most of you all know very well. But then, now your relationship to it is through, say, seeing it in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of self. You see, you're changing the way you look at it from a personal interpretation of sexual desire to a, a seeing it in terms of what it is as a condition rising, ceasing. You're restrained, like we can't eat in the evening or afternoon. We have, we have this meal, the breakfast, porridge in the morning, and then the, the meal before noon, and so forth. And then we have, we have, maybe we get hungry. We have desire for food, all this kind of thing. We can, we can use that, that kind of desire, to understand it, not just to, to suppress. We're not trying to suppress, because that's vipa-vodanha, isn't it? Trying to get rid of it or ignore it. But understanding desire let, and then letting go of desire. You can still feel hungry or still feel the, the heat of sexual uh, uh, instinctual feelings, but you're letting go. You're realizing how to let go of that feeling, of that desire. So that's an internal thing. It's something you, you realize from within. It's not, it's not a, a technique that can be described. It's something you have to, to have insight into. It comes from within you, where you, you're awakened from within, rather than just me or senior monk or nun telling you how to deal with sexual desires. And you try what, what people tell you. It's a, I mean, we can kind of maybe give suggestions or upayas for how to deal with these things, but it's up to you to, to find out how to, how, to, uh, you know, how to investigate and to see these things as they really are. Then the, then the uh, third noble truth, is the real, is the realization is there is the cessation of dukkha dukkha niroda there is the cessation of suffering suffering ceases so that's the first insight into the third noble truth because when you when you let go of desire 
and you realize desire has been let go of, then you then there's this then you can see that desire is something or suffering and desire are synonymous. They cease, they're not permanent. But you're realizing the cessation of desire. It's not just an idea, you know, that you have. It's not just uh, an abstraction, but you, you, you actually can realize. So the insight is cessation of desire, cessation of suffering should be realized. The realization. So how do you realize the absence of something? How do you realize the absence of desire since desire ceased when it's gone, when it's ended? And mindfulness, then, of course, is the is the means we use it. Sati, sampachanya, sati panya. These words: mindfulness, awareness. Wisdom, because sati is is the is what is you know is isn't dependent upon uh, the uh, conditions. Whether you uh, you know you can you, that, that the common factor in all of this is sati, this awareness, this watching, this attentiveness. That's not analytical. You're not kind of analyzing, figuring it out. Uh, it, uh, because then you get caught up, then you, you lose the sati, you become logical and rational. And, and then, but you're, you're not, you can't realize the absence of something through, through logic or reason. You may get the idea of it in your head, but the realization comes through this attentive awareness, intuitive awareness. Sustained awareness. It's very simple, isn't it? Awakenness, awareness, sustained awakenness. And so then, desire ceases, and you, the realization, desire ceases. That's the niroda, the cessation. You realize the absence of desire. The mind or the present moment where there's no desire. You, 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 you know that. It's a, real, it's a reality. It's not, a, it's not an idea that might happen next year if you practice hard. It's a, it's a reality. So these are insights. And then the fourth noble truth is, is uh, called the Eightfold Path. And so you have the, the third noble truth, there is an end, there's a cessation of suffering. It should be, cessation should be realized, and cessation has been realized. Notice the, the same pattern, statement, prescription, and the result. Then, there is the way of non-suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. The way of non-suffering, based on right understanding. So, avicca or ignorance has been relinquished at this time. So there's right, there's samaditi, right understanding, 
or right knowing, right understanding, from those insights that, that one has had over the first, second, third noble truths. So there, then, then the insight, there is the way of non-suffering. This way, this Eightfold Path, should be developed or cultivated. And then the third insight into the Fourth Noble Truth is the way has been developed. So this, uh, so this is development or cultivation, this means a practice with the flow of life. It means that we, we're actually putting it into practice in, in daily life experiences. In just the, the nitty-gritty, frustrating ordinariness of daily life. You know, we, 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 we develop the Eightfold Path. We don't need, once there's right understanding, then you don't need special conditions, you know, just like, you know, a lot of uh, special situations for your practice. You, you can develop the Eightfold Path in all the time. It's something that it's a, it's a way of, of relating, of responding to life, as we're, as to the flow of life as we're feeling and experiencing it. So there's, there's 12 insights. Three, three insights for each noble truth, three aspects of each noble truth and 12 insights. And this is this list, this kind of way of presenting it is also very skillful because it's easy to memorize and it's like a, something to reflect upon. It's a teaching to take and use. It's not, I mean, we can chant it like this every Asala Puja day and, and uh, it's all very nice, but that's just, this is just to, a chance to really bring it back into daily use. There's something to, to keep reflecting on over and over and over again. Because dukkha, suffering comes in all different things. I mean, you, you have these insights, maybe, in the early part of your life, in the early part of your monastic life, or in, even in your lay life, you can have these insights. But then, to apply those, to develop that in the, in the life, And so then monastic life does make sense as a way of living, doesn't it? Uh, they, why the Buddha established the monastic Sangha? Because it, it, uh, it is a very helpful reminder of developing this path all the time. You look at yourself, your, the robes and the, the Buddha images and the Vinaya and all the rest, they're constantly reminding you. Because you do forget, it's easy to forget all about this and get caught up in all kinds of worldly things again. The world, worldly dhammas have a very kind of powerful effect on our conscious experience. They scream at us. And the world has this kind of screeching quality. Look at me. <laughs> I'm here. I'm important. I'm, I want to be, you know, the, the world is always full of that. Endless demanding. 
announcing, proclaiming, screaming at us that the worldly things are the important ones. And so if you if you don't if you don't firmly establish yourself in a practice, then the world eventually just takes you over because the world has this kind of hysteria, hysterical quality to it, where it, it, uh, it, it, it e- we easily become intimidated or taken over by worldly habits and worldly values. So that's why in monastic life we have this more reflective style, you know, morning puja, evening puja, retreat, uh, vasa. Now we're, we're tomorrow we'll enter vasa. Is a, it's a tradition. It's established around the rains, rainy season in India, the monsoons in India, and where, where it became impossible to travel. Everything was flooded. So the bhikkhus had to stay in one place and determine the three-month vasa. Here in England, it's the best time of the year. It's the best time for traveling, isn't it? July, August, September, October, the very best. <laughs> in Europe, it's the best time for traveling. It's not, we don't have the monsoon. But the tradition is there. So we're not, we're not quibbling about the weather anymore, but about the, the fact that, that it, it is a reminder, isn't it? We're using tradition also as a helpful reminder. It doesn't have to be all that logical or reasonable if we're using it to to recollect to remember what we're doing part of a tradition where we're uh, it helps it, 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 there's something that tra- in a tradition that goes on from one generation to the next that say you know Ajahn Sumedho might come up with some very good ideas but then when I die it'll probably be forgotten but the tradition <laughs> carries on yeah. during this you know, Lumpur Cha died, and now uh, Lumpur Jan died, and and Master Hua, and all these these great teachers die. But the tradition carries on in spite of whether they they're alive or not. That's what you can see in Wat Bap Hong in in Thailand, Lumpur Cha's monastery. Is that it still goes? You don't have a you don't have a a, a, a teacher like Lumpur Cha to run it anymore. There's nobody that can kind of replace Tanajan Shah as a, you know, as a, have the same kind of impact that he had. But it's not necessary because the tradition is carrying it onward. And, and with Lumpur Jan, the tradition carries it through. It isn't dependent. Lumpur Jan's dead now, so that's the end of it. Something carrying it, as I say, from the time of the Buddha to this present moment. So that's why a, a tradition has it. This is, you know, has it, we can get New Age kind of cults in that, which oftentimes speak to us very strongly, and and we resonate sometimes with New Age ideas and new new things. But oftentimes they they never become traditional. They merely they die very quickly, become fashionable, and then get out of fashion or faddish. But, they, but it, they notice that a tradition can become fashionable, 
again. But it, it also, when it's not fashionable, something carries it through the time that it's even been persecuted. You know, in my lifetime, the Buddhism in the world has gone through quite a incredible uh, change from, say, I was born in 1934, and that's about the time Stalin came into power, I think, that time in, in the Soviet Union. And then, then in 1936, in Mongolia, they, they killed all the monks. All the Buddhist monks in Mongolia were, were murdered. That was in 1936, two years after I was born. And then, and then uh, after that, uh, the Buddhist country seemed to be in a terrible state. They, in China, when communist in 49, and Buddhism was persecuted and, and suppressed, and, and Laos and, and Cambodia, they, they tried to completely destroy Buddhism in Cambodia, the Pol Pot. That was only 20 years ago. They tried to just annihilate the whole Buddhist structure, which is, was, Cambodia was a very strong Theravadan Buddhist country. In Laos, it suffered. It, just, it wasn't quite, they weren't so violent, but it was put down and corrupted by the, by the system, by the political system. One could see, you know, that Buddhism also at the time of uh, the spread of Islam was, was destroyed in, in India, in Indonesia, Malaya, Malaysia. These were all Buddhist countries at one time, and then the Buddhism was wiped out. In, say, in Indonesia and, in, and most of it in India, Pakistan, and in Afghanistan, and in the Middle East, uh, in, the, in Central Asia, in Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan, all those places were once Buddhist. And then disappeared when the spread of Islam. And yet, Buddhism somehow survives. You know, it, it dies out, but it seems to spring up. Now you see, see Buddhists in, in England. Let's say 100 years ago, that'd be, you'd never see anything like this in the UK. <laughs> Just came back from America. Well, still, the Buddhists, so many Buddhists there. Where when I lived in, in America 30 years ago, I didn't know any Buddhists. And I was a Buddhist, but they're rare creatures, hard to find. So tradition, you see, is that's why in, in uh, here, why one reason why I've been trying to preserve the form of Theravada Buddhism, not out of just some, not out of attachment to it, because I... I'm afraid of, of letting go of it. It's not like that, but because you realize the value of, 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 of using a traditional form. Because it's not personal, it's not mine, it's not something I thought of, it's not, it, 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 it's something that, that has been going on from the time of the Buddha, so that you have a, you ha it has a continuity through time, 
through generations that I that none of us could provide as personalities. So that's why sometimes it it does seem a bit maybe outdated or cumbersome in settings like European countries. But but I, I tend to trust it in the tradition because I think it's it survived. And I, I trust that the tradition more than I would my own personal emotional reactions to the difficulties and problems that that it might present at times. Because the main point of it is liberation. We're not here to preserve a tradition as an end in itself. That'd be silly. It's like hanging on to antiques and stately homes and propping up old churches as they fall down like they do here in Britain. Just to, just to keep them because they're, they, they want them as a kind of national heritage or something like that. But this is actually, that point of it is liberation. So that it actually works. Still, it's a liberating teaching. It's not, there's nothing that the, the effect, the power of this teaching has not been lost at all. In uh, through the through the ages, well, these are reflections from my mind. I'm not. Um, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm just how how I contemplate it. Then it's a hundredth day since Lumpur Jan's death, and in the Buddhist countries, in Thailand, for example, they they have a memorial service on the fiftieth, the fiftieth day after somebody died, and the hundredth day. So this is the hundredth day of falling on Asala Puja. And Lumpur Jan was uh, one of my teachers. He was uh, one of the disciples of Lumpur Cha, one of the uh, older long-term disciples. He was he was at he wasn't at Wat Bapong when I first went there in 1967. He he'd already moved to his own monastery, a place called Bunkalwa. But that was only a new monastery. I remember he was building his sala there. He built this sala. But now they have a new sala. The sala he built when I first went there, he was building. It was pretty horrible sala, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he put too many pillars in. It like, it didn't have a kind of forest-like effect, you know. Too many posts everywhere. And, uh, but that, that, so that sala is now just used for storage. Renner Blatt Tamon and I was there last year and we were noticing that that old sala, which was new, it was just being built when I went there in 67. Now it's old, impermanent. But Dung Po Jan was, uh, he, he and I had great affinities because we were both we were speaking in, in terms that some of you will find maybe objectionable, but which does does prevent does give me a chance to kind of 
explain my own personal affinities with uh, Lumpur John was that we were both born in the year of the dog under the sign of Leo. So we were Leo dogs. I mean, he was 12 years older. He was uh, 72. And he was born, I was born on the 27th of July, and he was born on the 31st of July. So he, he was, uh, we had, and so there's a, we took to each other almost immediately. I think I noticed that the, these kind of affinities, if you want to make anything out of it, but there was a, a kind of uh, easy, easy relationship. I never found him, I, he and I could... Uh, really enjoyed each other's company, and we never, I never found, I found it very easy to live with him and relate to him, understand him. Then uh, he also, uh, I spent a, a masa with him, my seventh masa. I stayed with him at his monastery, and then uh, he came here to England for one year. When was it, 88 or 1988? And he was—he had a very—he uh, uh, he was a very uh, ascetic monk. He, in, a, in his own practice, uh, uh, he was—he really uh, tortured himself physically, and um, that's probably why he died. <laughs> but it, it did have its effect that he. Mentally, he was uh, he was a he was quite a, a positive and loving presence, and yet uh, in his own life he was quite quite Spartan and, and quite hard on himself physically. So when when Ajahnatpemo and I saw him last year, and he just come back from having a knee operation, he had bad knees, so he had a knee operation, and and so we greeted him, and he insisted on sitting like this, in this Thai polite posture, which is absolutely, you know, excruciating on your knees, if you've had an operation. And so I kept saying, uh, oh, please sit in the chair, sit in the chair. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. And you could tell he was in agony, that his, his mind was not in agony. He had a kind of bright in spite of the physical pain, he had a very kind of bright mind. So I could see, I began to understand just uh, how he could uh, kind of transcend the physical, the, the, the physical pain of his body because it didn't seem to affect his mental state at all. He could be quite, he was bright, cheerful, friendly, and in no way trying to get rid of us or anything. I mean, he wanted us to stay longer. You know, he, uh, you know, maybe we'd better get out of here so he can get some... He, he didn't want us to... He wasn't trying to get rid of us because of the pain. So I heard when he died in the hospital in Uborn that he he started hemorrhaging and, and that he just... Uh, they said his mind was still bright and clear just till the moment he died. Because he was so used, even though his his hemorrhaging and vomiting up blood and things like that, it didn't seem to alter his mental state. 
very interesting uh, approach. But he was also very open, and uh, and he he was very he had a he was a he wasn't a, a dosa jurid. He didn't didn't hate didn't have a lot of anger or aversion. He was more on the lopa side, the greed and uh, greedy side of life. So maybe that's why he 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 became ascetic, more ascetic, because it it was a, maybe a balance to the to the lust or greedy tendencies of, of his character. He was also in the Sangha in Ubor, and he was a very uh, important figure, especially after Lung, when Lung Po Cha was ill uh, and, and after his death. Uh, Lumpo John, I think, was a very balanced. He was a very mature, and his and his he could give very good advice. He was never, even though he had this ascetic streak, he was never really an extreme monk in any way. He had a, a kind of balanced way of dealing with things, and and one always appreciated his advice at sangha meetings because it was good sense. It wasn't coming from a lot of of uh, zealous enthusiasm or from a lot of uh, aversion or anger. And when you go to a Sangha meeting, like in Thailand, for example, you, you can, you, you know, some of the monks, they're really hot-tempered, some of them, and full of anger, and, and, and uh, a lot of them just don't have very much wisdom, and they'll, they'll, they'll say foolish things, or they'll have, they'll have axes to grind. And Lung Po Jan was always someone that could kind of, in a very skillful way, calm it all down to, to a reasonable level. And he was, I think, highly regarded because of that. He looked, I think, after Lung Po Chan died, most of us looked to Lung Po Jan as the successor. He started, I felt, most confident with him than any other of the disciples of Lung Po Cha. He loved it here in England. The year that he spent here, I think he really enjoyed it. And uh, he, he'd, uh, he'd, always, he'd always liked foreigners. And he, uh, he had, for a while, he'd work, he, when he was a young boy, he'd been brought up by missionaries, Christian missionaries, American missionaries in Newborn. And they were very good to him, and he'd, he'd always remembered them with great uh, kind of affection and respect. And so he had, he had a contact with, with Americans, uh, and he, he had a very positive feeling about Western people. He didn't didn't uh, have any kind of prejudices or dislike of, of Western or European people. And uh, he also um, was very, he had, uh, he was very good at training nuns. 
and uh, he, he really liked women. <laughs> and he was very, because he liked women, he could, they, they, he, uh, the nuns could respond to him. I mean, because he, he was quite uh, thoughtful and, and helpful in trying to support uh, nuns in, in his monastery towards spiritual practice. But here in England, he'd take an interest in, he liked the English, uh, he liked everybody. He was, he was, uh, seemed to want to relate to, to, sometimes Thai monks, they don't, even when they're here in England, they, they only want to talk to Thai people, they don't, not very interested in the Europeans. And, but Ajahn Jan was very, he was very inter, inter, like Lumpur Charles. So they're very interested in uh, in the in the in the British or the Europeans, wanting to know them, wanting to understand them. <coughs> And this uh, Four Noble Truths, the uh, Tamajaka Sutta, and the, this essential teaching, this is very much the teaching Lumpur Cha. We, we'd have to memorize this sutta. All of us, we'd memorize it and, and even translate it into Thai. And, uh, and it was, and, and Lumpur Cha was all constantly giving reflections on the Four Noble Truths. So it is, it is a, uh, you know, it is the, it's what's called the essential teaching, the very essence of Dhamma. And sometimes we're criticized because we're not, we're not academically very skilled. Like, I'm not a, a well-read person in terms of the scriptures. You know, I've read a number of scriptures. I haven't really studied them uh, to any great degree because... My main interest was in, in the practice of this Four Noble Truths. So, so I'm not a, a kind of great uh, Buddhist scholar or an expert on the, on the suttas, but I have developed uh, through my contemplation of these Four Noble Truths and through the living the life of a monk under the Vinaya. This I... I fully appreciate it. So I do have this enormous regard for just this, this, this essential teaching of the Four Noble Truths because it's, it's pretty much all I've ever used in the practice over 30 years. But it's in a continuous application of it, applying it to everything that happens to you. Everything, good and bad. Because you keep learning from it, and this, then you you keep you, you realize you become very clear in your mind when when there is no suffering, when there is no self, 
like the third noble truth, is a realization of non-self, of non-desire, of non-suffering. So mindfulness allows you to know when there's no suffering, there's no desire, there's no self. In, while you're conscious, you're not, you don't dream about it. When you're fully conscious, awake and alert, you, you realize that. Realize the conscious experience in the moment where there's no, where there's non-attachment and where there's no, no sense of a self or a personality or no um, desire. There's awareness when there is and when there is not. And so this is, this, uh, this teaching is, that's why it, it, the Buddha Dhamma seems to me to have this, it's a, it's a very simple teaching. It's, it's very simple because it's, it's dealing with just this, this, the presence and the absence of the condition experience of desire, of self, of, uh, and so forth. It's, it, with the presence of it, to be mindfulness allows us to know the present and then the cessation or the absence of something. And so you study that. You, you, you notice, you pay attention. Now, I'm not discouraging the study of the scriptures either. This Vasa, we're going to study the scriptures. I want to, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I I like the scriptures too. Enjoy it. But but to me, the, the real test of the Dhamma lies in the fact that it's very practical rather than intellectual. It's not just philosophical and theological and metaphysical. It's very practical. You can be illiterate and still realize the Dhamma. You don't have to know how to read and write to realize the truth of the way it is. Not something dependent on being literate. So to me that 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 makes it even more profound that that the truth is now and it's not and, and there's no obstruction. I mean if you're blind you can't see, you can't read and write, you can still realize the Dhamma. These are not obstructions to enlightenment. Blindness is not an obstruction. Bad health is not an obstruction. Illiteracy is not an obstruction. Venerable Admiral, should, do you have any reflections on Lumpur Jan?
or is this not the right time? I'll, I'll go back and then we can be better about lovely, wouldn't it? We turned around that way.